Hi there, esteemed audience. Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, which, as you know, is available in paperback, a uh, wonderful audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Ratke, and the ebook is available to download for free permanently on multiple platforms. So whenever you're watching or hearing this, you'll be able to get your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Get yourself ready for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, which is coming here in 2019. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write horror novels, including the young adult novel Altogether Now, A Zombie Story, also available as an audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke. Uh, and I've got a serial horror novel, The Book of David, about a haunted house and flying saucers. Uh, it's for a mature audience, so if you are a mature audience member and you're curious, the, you can get the first of the five installments in the uh, serial horror novel, The Book of David, for free. It has an electronic book whenever you're watching this. And of course, as always, check us out at middlegradeninja.com. We've got interviews with hundreds of literary agents, authors, and other publishing professionals, as well as guest posts, and of course, more programs like this one. Uh, we've also got an interview with the wonderful Mary Cole, who is our guest today. I'm so excited. Mary Cole is a former literary agent, current editor, and just all around publishing rock star. Mary, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for the intro. I wish I had my book with me, so I'll just, because <laughs> that is, that is spiffy. I am the author of Writing Your Resistible Kidlet, which you can have. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm going to put a picture of uh, you holding Irresistible Kidlet, because that's your profile with your sweet uh, turtle <laughs> tattoo uh, and your coffee. That's going to be the picture, uh, right. the screenshot and everywhere, so people will for sure see it, and I'll link to the book, because it is a great book. Uh, in fact, let's start there. Tell people about your great book and why it's irresistible. <gasps> Uh, it's irresistible because of the Ursula Nordstrom quote that I focused the book on, which is basically, so she was a legendary editor in the 50s, 60s at Harper and Row, now HarperCollins. And uh, she basically started children's books as we know them today. And she was very fond of saying, if I can resist a book, I resist it. And so when I was a literary agent with Andrea Brown, that's just something that I really wanted to convey to people, which is, you know, you have to really work hard in this crowded marketplace to make your book so amazing that it's absolutely irresistible. And that was sort of the, the thesis idea that that uh, was the genesis for the book. So uh, calling it anything else, I think, would have been would have been uh foolish so that's where irresistible came from um but yeah i uh, i started blogging at kidlit k-i-d-l-i-t uh in 2009 when i started interning at a literary agency i really like i was coming across so many funny things in the slush and so of course my uh this was when like query shark was a thing and my first instinct was like, oh my gosh, I really have to uh, put some of this funny stuff online, which of course is a huge ethical violation. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would never do that to writers uh, just coming into the slush pile. But instead, I was like, no, Mary, take your mean hat off and put your helpful hat on. And uh, maybe you can talk about, you know, the things that writers should do, question, answering questions that writers have to help them be a little less funny in the slush pile, unintentionally funny in the slush pile. Um, so that was the genesis of the blog. I really wanted to sort of talk directly to writers about query letters, publishing issues, children's books. Um, and then 
the uh, that got attention and that got some traction and i was uh i partnered with writers digest on webinars and stuff and that eventually led to a book and some people just repackage blog content for their book i really didn't want to do that i wanted i'm kind of a masochist like if i can do more work and not less i usually do that <laughs> but i that's, I, that's I, what I, you know you care right yeah, I like to hold myself to a high standard. So I'm like, no, I am not going to reissue a, just a package of, of blog articles cobbled together. I'm going to write a completely new book. And it's just something that I'm so proud of. It was so much fun. I, I took this approach like the Donald Moss um, approach to the writing guide. He uses a lot of examples in his teaching points. He's now written a bajillion writing reference books and he's really kind of an inspiration for me because he weaves in examples from the shelves. And so I took it upon myself to do that with a lot of middle grade and YA that was kind of contemporary at the time, like 2009 to 2013, which is when I was really getting my big sample for that book. And so that book was so fun to write because I, it was like a giant book report on 35 to 40 titles that I really loved uh, at the time and, and still do coming out of the children's book publishing marketplace. And so it was just like, I had my stacks of books and they all had those little, um, those little flags everywhere for like instances of great character or great writing voice. And I got to like put them all together. It was very a beautiful mind. You know, like all the things like scrawling around my head in beautiful golden writing. It was just so much fun to to put that book together. And to this day, I hear about it being useful to writers and it helping people. And th there's just nothing more gratifying to me. So that's the book. Well, it's certainly been uh, useful to me. It is just head and shoulders above your average uh, uh, craft book. And I've been reading, I was uh, looking, I've been reading kidlit.com. Uh, haven't helped me coming up on nine years here. Um, and I uh, have found so many wonderful, uh, useful articles in there. Uh, so if you want the official middle grade ninja certification, <laughs> whatever the badge is, you have it. Anybody that's uh, watching or listening to this, if you haven't gone to kidlit.com, absolutely make your way over there. You're going to find just a wealth of, of knowledge and information. Uh, and then these uh, webinars that you're running now that, that um, uh, writers or anybody who might be interested can get signed up for. Tell us a little bit about that and what we could expect. Yes. So like I said uh, just a minute ago, I started doing webinars for Writer's Digest. They have a really strong webinar program. They do a lot of virtual programming, which I think is really smart because to be honest, nobody wants to wear pants and go to like a conference hotel somewhere. Like people with all the tech coming online and uh, making it really easy to do stuff like this, it's like why even go anywhere? Well, there are good reasons, but anyway, um, so I love the platform of the webinar. I get, I love to do my public speaking, but I have a young family. It's not always feasible for me to get away for a whole conference weekend. So by doing webinars, I can speak directly to my audience, present whatever fits my fancy at the moment. You know, I'm doing query talks. I'm doing first pages talks. I'm doing kind of a rah-rah motivational writing goals talk uh, for one of the last days of 2018. And I already have a lot of signups for that. So by like the, the tech is there now where I found a platform that I like to use that people seem, um, seem to get along with well. And so now I can just present workshops from this space in my house. And I absolutely love it because I don't have to eat airplane food. 
um, to <laughs> do it, you know? Yeah. And so I, I had my first one in September. It was awesome. And I just have this like rolling calendar now. I'm trying to do like one a month and really uh, reach out to people. I have a, so on Kidlet, I put a webinars and events page where I talk about um, different, mostly virtual things. If I do a conference, like I still do get uh, in-person conferences that I attend. So any any event that I'm doing that's coming up, you can find it on the webinars and events page. So I have I I'm just gonna keep it going because I think it's so much fun and I've gotten a great response from it. Well, sooner or later, you and I are gonna bump into each other at a live event, and I'm gonna shake your hand and I'm gonna say thank you, Mary Cole, for the years <laughs> of information uh, that that has been unbelievably useful to me. And, uh, and, and, I, people, I, uh, and tears will be shed, and it will be my honor and my privilege. <laughs> <laughs> We're out tears, but also maybe we'll laugh. We'll even maybe we'll have a beer or a coffee. It'll be a good yeah. time. Yeah, for sure. And I was uh, in preparing for this. I went back and I, I don't want to embarrass you too much, but I uh, found one of my original rejections back when I was still querying literary agents and you were with Andrea Brown, I believe, at the time. Uh, and I had sent you a copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, again, available for free to download, <laughs> um, that uh, but it was uh, four years before the final version. I don't know how many different drafts later. Uh, so ultimately you were probably right to reject it, but I know that there are uh, gonna be some literary agents and publishing professionals, editors, other people that are watching or listening to this. Uh, if you are and you'd like to come on the show, by all means, uh, get in touch with me, let's make that happen. But uh, I found this um, rejection that you sent me and I'm not going to read it to you. I think that'd be embarrassing for both of us. I will put it in the notes for the show. So if anybody's curious, you can go, you can read the whole thing. Um, but it starts off with the standard. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, the writing here is good. The premise is fun. Uh, and then you go on to say that I know I'll be kicking myself, but I'm not connecting with the material enough to be the best advocate for it, which is just the kindest thing that you could have done for me, because if you didn't feel that way, you, you weren't the person to represent it at the time. <laughs> and that made such a, a big difference because uh, especially I'm old enough to remember when I was doing all of my queries by physical mail with the old SASE. Uh, and so, you know, I'd, I'd send out maybe 10 well-researched agents at the start of the month and then two weeks would go by, no word, and then I'd get five all in one day and they'd all say, dear writer, and I'd say, oh no, because dear writer is the kiss of death. Uh, but then you get something like that and you can hold your head up a little bit higher and say, okay, well, I'm rejected, but Mary Cole thinks I'm a pretty good writer. She believes I maybe have the future. So thank you very much for that. And anybody who might be listening who is in a position to reject writers, please go and do likewise. It makes all the difference. So let's uh, move on. Let's talk about what you're up to now uh, because you are providing editing services for writers. So tell us a little bit about the services you're providing and where uh, we can go to learn more about them. Absolutely. So I'll do my little pitch for marycole.com. That's Cole with a K. Uh, that's where you can find all of my editing services. I wish I hadn't started two separate websites. I've told I've been told that that's not very smart uh, for like search engine optimization, but that those ships have sailed years ago. Anyway, so my editorial services are linked over from Kidlet enough, um, but they live at marycole.com. And I basically so I uh, I was an agent in 2013 in New York City. I was very, very fantastic and living the high life. And uh, I just thought I was going to do that forever. 
because I loved being in New York City as an agent. And I loved having boots on the ground. I loved meeting with editors. I really, like, I'm kind of a tactile, not that I'm, like, touching editors, <laughs> you know, but I, I like to be in meetings with people face-to-face, -face, really getting a sense, because if you meet with enough editors, they're all going to say, I'm looking for literary craft and commercial appeal. And if you want to go past that, you need to go to lunch with the person. You need to really kind of be on the scene. At least that's how I feel. So uh, in 2013, I met the man who would become my husband. And um, he was also like a Brooklyn person, very, very cool. We were both very cool, I have to say, very cool. Um, we just thought we were uh, the gonna have the best New York City life, but then something happened that I've since learned happens to Midwestern people um, in that he, this homing beacon clicked on in his head when he met somebody that he wanted to settle down with. He was like, must go back to Minnesota. And um, <laughs> if he- I'm laughing working, because I uh, lived in Chicago for yeah. a while. And then as soon as um, uh, my wife and I started to get serious, I was thinking, oh, Indiana is calling to me. I understand. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm from California. I was living in New York. Again, never thought that I would leave the coasts and Suddenly, we're talking about moving to Minnesota. It's a cost of life decision, very boring, kind of grown up decision. And uh, if he'd been wearing a t shirt that said, I am going to make you move to Minnesota, if we get serious, I probably would have like kept on walking at the bar, <laughs> you know? Um, anyway, so we well, decided- Well, that's an important dating tip for uh, fellow Minnesotans out there. Don't wear that shirt when you're in New York. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just be like, no, no, we're staying on the coast forever. And then you kind of, you, you club them over the head and drag them to your Minnesota cave. Anyway, um, so that's what happened to me. I found myself uh, moving to the Midwest and I just didn't feel great about continuing to agent outside the New York environment. A lot of people do. It just wasn't, it wasn't how I wanted to work. I didn't think I'd be a great asset for my clients that way. And so I said, okay, what do I always love to do with my clients as an agent? And it all came back to actually working on the manuscript. There's so much pressure on literary agents and writers to turn out the strongest possible manuscript right now because, you know, publishing is competitive. And so to get an offer, to get a better offer on your manuscript, it really behooves you to have it in the strongest fighting form. And as an agent, I was doing a lot of editorial work and that was... My favorite part, far and above reviewing publishing contracts, like, let me tell you. Um, so I was like, well, if I'm gonna leave New York, I would like to leave agenting probably as, as uh, horrible as that decision was because I loved it. Um, well, what can I do? I can do the thing that I've always loved as part of agenting, which is working one-on-one -on -one with writers as a freelance editor. And so I just hung out my shingle in 2013 as a freelance editor. And I've been doing that full time for five years now. And um, so what, uh, what, uh, a couple of questions on, on the back of that. One, um, back when you were editing as a literary agent before it would go on to an editor uh, or a publishing house or God, however many people have to weigh in on these decisions, it's an entire panel yeah. it seems like sometimes. How much editing would, would then continue to be done to those manuscripts or were you getting into the, the the kind of condition to where they could all but uh, set print on the paperback the next day. 
Well, I, I don't want to take that much credit for the work that I did, but I was heavily editorial. And um, then obviously every editor who, this is a really good point because it, um, a writer has to make this big adjustment in their career if they do get published from being kind of the only person responsible for a manuscript and in charge of a manuscript and in control of a manuscript to, okay, my agent is gonna have some things to say about it, okay. You know, or maybe first critique partner, then agent. And then the publisher has an identity as well. And the editor that acquires a manuscript has an identity within the imprint where they work, within the pub group where they work, the other uh, editors who, who are in the company and what the publisher wants to do and what that editor themselves wants to do. So suddenly you get a lot of cooks in your kitchen who are saying, okay, um, well, I think that this would be better spun into a gothic horror or whatever, you know. <laughs> Obviously these are conversations that you wanna have before you accept a publishing offer because if an editor has a completely other idea for your project than you kind of went into it with, it may not be, as, as attractive it, as it is to potentially have an offer or a publishing deal, it may not be a wonderful fit if they're like, okay, let's just make this a zombie romance. Um, and you're not 100% on board with that. But anyway, so what I'm trying to say is everyone will always have kind of a slant. And the, the biggest uh, voice in that is going to be your publishing house editor. The agent can do their best to sort of emphasize the strengths and de-emphasize <laughs> the weaknesses of a project before it, it goes out on submission to publishers, but that acquiring editor is really gonna be doing a lot of work with you to help shape the project, not only into its best, 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 best version of itself, but also something that dovetails with what that publisher's identity is, what that imprint's identity, and what that editor's identity is, because they're the ones that are sort of bringing you to market and public, uh, partnering with you to publish the work. Well, that makes sense. And that's uh, theoretically uh, can be a very good deal uh, for an author to have a, a version of the book that's maybe not what they set out to create initially, but that's going to get a far broader distribution um, and maybe find a market, or I'm sorry, not a market, uh, some readers that it wouldn't have found were it not paired with that uh, big publishing house. Yeah, because packaging the work uh is really the publisher's milieu. They choose the cover design. You know, it's like choosing the look, the branding. Like people, um, people don't really generally think of their their books as products, but that's where a publisher comes in. And if you self-publish, you become the publisher that has to make those decisions in terms of like, how are people, people do judge a book by its cover. How are people gonna react when they see this on shelves? What genre is it going to, you know, different genres have different looks, different conventions. And so that whole process is a part of the, a part of the whole book creation piece that a lot of writers who are just sitting in their room writing, they don't even think about yet, so. So question that then, how do you, how did you yourself keep from pulling your hair out when you'd had suggestions for a book and they wanted to do something different? And then how did you keep the authors from pulling their hair out? Well, uh, this kind of, so I was just talking to somebody about this actually, about how you choose a freelance editor. And I think this, this all comes back to sort of doing your research and um, vetting whoever you work with. And obviously that applies to hiring a freelance editor, but it can also apply to choosing a literary agent. 
having discussions with your agent about the kind of publishers that they're going to be approaching with your project. I am, uh, I put together, and this will be out in January. I'm really excited about it. Uh, with Writing Blueprints, which is kind of an online program um, platform for children's writers. Um, I put together a class on submissions, eight hours uh, of this mug talking, <laughs> <laughs> and, and as beautiful as it is, um, talking about the submission process. And query letters are but one unit of this big submission blueprint, even though all writers are endlessly fascinated with query letters. My bigger point in the whole class, and it's gonna be this giant dead horse um, throughout the whole thing, is the importance of research. There are so many agents out there. There are so many freelance editors out there. Uh, obviously, I'm the best, but I am. Goes <laughs> with that saying. There's so many different publishers out there, each with their own kind of slant, their own kind of branding, like we're talking about. Um, it would behoove you. This is where the dead horse comes back to life, and I beat it again. It would behoove you to do good research because if you're submitting to any agent just because they're warm body and they accept your category, like say middle grade adventure, um, you're submitting to all 50 agents who've expressed even a tiny interest in that, you're not really setting yourself up for success because what if you do get a response from an agent that's like, I think we should make this a zombie love story. And because they're the only person that responded, you kind of, you feel like you have to maybe say yes, or you feel like pressure to go in a certain direction that you don't resonate with. Well, if you had done your research, uh, selected your agent list a little bit more carefully because agents are out there. They have social media, they give interviews, they do stuff like this. They appear it's, on middlegradeninja.com, hundreds of literary agents waiting right now for you to go and discover. I was, uh, I was that just, wonderful site, and of course, kitlit.com, where <laughs> uh, would you hear authors to go and uh, and look for and to do their research on before submitting? This gentleman is a marketing masterclass in action, by the way. If you don't know how to market a book or how to market yourself, Look no further than oh well now when we guide. meet I'm gonna buy you that coffee or that beer <laughs> <laughs> before we were going Dutch now it's on me great I love free coffee so um what I was saying is it would it would really up your chances of partnering with somebody that you might get along with if you did that research ahead of time and said oh this agent really seems to love zombie love stories. That's not really my thing. So I'm probably not going to query this person. I'm going to query this person who loves um, whatever it is I'm writing and try to make a match. Like that's your responsibility to do that research because you know your project best. And so ideally, you're going to research the right agents, submit maybe to a smaller list, but to a more carefully, here's where I use the hipster word curated list. Again, this is your responsibility. You wanna set yourself up for success down the line. And so by doing all that legwork ahead of time, you up your chances that you're gonna be a fit for whoever and whoever is gonna be a fit for you if you do end up working together. So ideally, you're not even getting in the situation where there's just this horrible mismatch between what you're doing and what the agent wants you to do and what the editor wants you to do because we've all made smart choices throughout the whole process. 
I was just uh, thinking that your query workshop and, and doing some of this research, um, a response that I anticipate some of the esteemed audience might have, not all, but some, uh, might be, well, I'm just going to independently publish my book, so I don't have to worry about those things. No. Uh, everything I ever learned about query writing came in handy because I still have to write a succinct description for the back of my book. I still have to go out there and sell the book, whether I'm selling it to literary agents, editors, or ultimately uh, esteemed reader, uh, which is who matters the most. So I would think anybody could benefit from your uh, query uh, writing workshop. I mean, uh, I obviously think so too, but it's it's true. And this, so uh, earlier this month, I published an interview with a client of mine who had self-published and it was kind of a case study because uh, when I tell people these things, they don't tend to listen because I'm part of the traditional establishment or at least I was. So I'm kind of like the man and nobody wants to hear the man talk about self-publishing. So I yeah, love but the my man, client. you are working with self-published authors, right? Yes. I work so you're with an advocate. Yeah. I work with self-published authors all the time. But what the reason I wanted to do this interview was the client came to me with a lot of really great experiences and talking points that I would have loved, I would love to transmit to people, which is that even though you're sort of circumventing the traditional publishing uh, piece when you self-publish, you still have to pay attention to what publishers are doing, how they're packaging books, how they're, you know, because now you are the publisher and you're competing with them. And reader tastes, reader standards have been, for better or for worse, set by those traditional publishers where readers are just more familiar with their products. You're new to the game. You have to convince somebody to spend their book buying dollar. And so you have to look at like, okay, what choices am I gonna make for uh, cover design? If my book is a sci-fi, does it have that sci-fi look that's gonna attract sci-fi readers? You know, like all of these choices are now in your lap. And I think that's wonderful for the right person. But if you're just gonna self-publish because you have been rejected too many times or whatever, and you think that this is your, your shortcut to getting your work out in front of readers, the tough lesson that a lot of people learn is that you suddenly you you're no longer a writer for the most part you still have to write and uh you have to write your next installment <laughs> you know but you're also you become a marketer uh you have to figure out how to write a great compelling back cover blurb like you were just saying you have to hire an editor to make sure your stuff is uh is ready to go because writers are uh always pretty bad. We're all bad judges of our own work, no matter what our creative sort of uh, output is. Um, we just have blind spots. And so usually when you get into a traditional publisher, they provide all of those things. They provide the cover designer, the editor, the marketing, the distribution, all of that. When you self-publish, those are all hats that you suddenly have to wear. And it can be a really big learning curve. So this self-publishing case study for um, Scavenger Scout um, which was a picture book that one of my uh, editing clients self-published. It was a really, really fascinating interview about kind of the the hard knocks she learned uh, going through that process. So if anybody's curious, it is a picture book, but um, a lot of the things that she sort of talks about can be widely applicable. So I, I would check it out. I loved reading the interview. This makes me think I should plug uh, an upcoming episode. We're going to have ah. uh, Susan K. Quinn on here. And Susan K. Quinn is one of my favorite writers. Uh, and she is an indie uh, publishing uh, master. She is the author of the Indie Author Publishing. Uh, I think it's the Indie Author Survival Guide. 
and uh, For Love and Money, I believe, is the second craft book she's written, and she's just impeccable. Uh, so those of you who are interested in, in considering self-publishing, uh, come on back for that, although I'm a big believer in using the term indie publishing anymore as opposed to self-publishing. Uh, because self-publishing implies that it's just me doing this, and I'm doing a lot. I was wearing my uh, writing hat first thing this morning. I got my word count. Uh, now I'm wearing my marketing hat, uh, and I will be wearing my publisher hat directly after this. But beyond me, I don't design my own covers. I'm, I'm not talented that way. Stephen Novak of Novak Illustration is brilliant. I've got about nine different editors that I use. Uh, and I also employ some different people to help me with marketing. Uh, I have been looking at possibly hiring a PR person to do the things I just plain don't have the time to do. So I think the mindset of any author, however you're going to publish, should be to collaborate with as many smart people as you can and build up a team uh, to help and, and, and support you. And I wanted to ask you another question uh, as, as we were going here. Uh, has it ever happened in all of your years in publishing that some author came to you with some brand new brilliant thing that bucked every trend uh, and followed none of the rules and they had never researched anything, but it was absolutely perfect. Have you talked to the, the, the Stephanie Meyer who had a dream about vampires and woke up and wrote it all down and sent it off? Has that happened? I mean, you know what? No, so I don't have the benefit of follow-up. I would love it if I could. So if I had a magical query box, because I still have my, uh, I still have my query Gmail where all of my Andrea Brown queries uh, funneled. And oh, now that you mentioned it, gosh, I would love it if I could hover over every query that came in and the, the results five years later would pop up. I think that would be so fascinating because I um, I can't, no example comes to mind because my brain bucket is just so full <laughs> these days. <laughs> like you were saying, you have outsourced a lot of the things that you're just too busy to do or that you're not as skilled at doing to other people. Like my brain bucket is so full. I, I work with three assistants actually. <laughs> so um, I can't, come to uh, a memory of somebody who just completely broke all the rules and ended up being brilliant. But I am sure that it happens. I'm sure that if I went back through my queries with my magical inbox and could see the results, there are things that came in there that like had horrible queries, horrible pitches. The book was brilliant and it went on to sell and I just missed out. And here I am. I should be kicking myself. <laughs> What's gonna happen is about two a.m. tonight. You're gonna you're gonna wake up and you can sit up in bed and like, oh, that's the person I should have mentioned. That's, I know. I I'm, I'm terrible about two things. Um, off the top of my head, case studies like this and book titles. If you would believe it, like I have read tens of thousands of books in my lifetime. It's kind of a prerequisite for the position. But if somebody asked me a book title like, oh, do you have any dual point of view middle grade you could recommend? <laughs> It's like I've never read a book in my life. And so I have to go into my into my thinking bubble and I have to write them an email later. And I, I always do because I am a principled person. But if I'm asked to, to do stuff like in the moment, I'm terrible at book titles. So what um, now that you're working as a freelance editor with writers, what, what's the biggest difference between how you're working with writers now and how you worked with them as a literary agent? Or is there a difference? Yeah, I am much more receptive to, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound horrible, but I am much more receptive to the uh, the writer's input 
in terms of their goals, you know. <laughs> that sounded a little terrible, please elaborate. <laughs> I will explain. Um, when you're a literary agent, uh, you're in this sort of position of authority where you kind of you kind of know better. And th this was part of like my fabulous Brooklyn life. I was like, oh man, I got, I got swagger, you know. <laughs> I'm a literary agent. Like you, there, there is uh, definitely a power dynamic between you and the client. Not that you want to take advantage of it, but you're the one having the meetings. You're the one who's paid to know um, what the editors want, what the publishers are publishing. There's a certain sort of like aura of knowledge that comes with being a literary agent. Um, and so there's maybe a little bit more clout to you when you talk to a client and they say, oh, I'm thinking of doing this, you know, when you're like, oh, that's a terrible idea or whatever, you know, you try to be nicer. Um, but there's, there's this sort of like, look, I was just at Harper this afternoon. They would never go for it. You know, <laughs> like, um, you, you sort of really lead the conversation because you know what the publishers are acquiring at that very moment and how to sort of help, uh, sh uh, shepherd this in that direction because the, it's assumed that if somebody's working with a literary agent that they kind of want, the book deal that you're going to go source for them. And so um, now that I am a freelance editor, it's much, it's a much bigger part of the conversation where they're like, I want to publish independently. How do I make this the best? This is my vision. How do I make this manuscript accomplish my vision in the best way possible? Make it the strongest thing that it, that I want it to be. With a literary agent, there's a lot more, there tends to be a lot more kind of shaping, if at all, if at all, that's the right word for it. Um, with a freelance editor, you obviously, I stand by my feedback. I give sometimes strong, challenging um, feedback with a lot of conviction behind it to my clients because I feel like that's what they're, that's what they're showing up for. And my best clients are the ones that want to be challenged, the ones that want to learn. Um, but if somebody's like, you know what, you are going to tell me that I can't write a picture book with an 87 year old main character. And, but that's my dream. So how do we make it work within my goals, within my parameters, you know, because traditionally you don't have a picture book that stars an adult character that doesn't tend to fly as well. The characters tend to be, um, kind of in line with the audience, which is, you know, three, five, seven year old. Um, and so that's one of the golden rules of picture books in the traditional model. But if somebody's like, I want to tell the best dang story about this 87 year old picture book protagonist, then we're going to have to figure out a way to make it work together. So it's a lot more collaborative in terms of the, the writer bringing their intention to the table as well. well. That sounds really freeing for you because now you can maybe tackle some projects you couldn't have before. Yeah, it's it's really creatively challenging because, um, you know, I'm kind of I have my traditional upbringing, if you will. I have all of those uh, perspectives that I gathered working in the traditional model. Um, but now I also have to think about story in maybe ways that I haven't before. You know, I have to um, not just deploy the old writing chestnut advice. I have to really um, challenge myself to come up with new perspectives. And that's what I love. Like every day that I show up to work is a different day. I'm working on a different manuscript. I'm working with a different writer. I have to take all of those things into account. And so it's like, 
even though I'm working with somebody else's creative input, like the creative work on the page isn't mine. It's highly creative for me to come into that and sort of see how I can be best of service. It sounds like a whole lot of fun. So uh, now that people are, are hearing this or watching this, however they're consuming it, uh, and they're thinking that Mary Cole, she sounds on the ball. I want to get her to <laughs> uh, redo my manuscript and, and make me a superstar. Um, what type of clients are you looking for? I know pro obviously you're, you're predominantly looking for uh, children's book authors of some kind, although you work with adult authors now as well, don't you? Yeah, I do. So I would say my balance, because my branding <laughs> as a person has been heavily in children's books with Kid Lit and, uh, and all of the work that I've done as a children's agent. But I would say my balance of client is about 70% children's um, and split pretty evenly. I do a lot of picture books. But so I have my picture books, then I have middle grade and young adult primarily. I have the oddball uh, early reader chapter book clients, those can be tough markets. So I just see fewer people trying to debut there. Um, and then the the 30% I do, um, I've been doing a lot of memoir. So I do a lot of adult fiction, but I am just so jazzed about memoir right now because it's something that I love to read. Uh, because I work so heavily in children's books, I don't tend to read children's books for a lot of pleasure. Um, I tend to read like nonfiction, uh, like sociology, psychology type of books because they're like completely different from what I work on. And then I tend to read a lot of memoir because the narrative style is very, very different from fiction, but fictional principles still apply because you're still talking about character. You're still talking about plot. It's just fashioned from the events of a real person's life. Anyway, so um, I've been working on a lot of memoir recently and just like getting into these life stories that have been so fascinating and like trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we take this from I am telling my life story to I am telling my life story to an audience and how do I hook that audience in and how might we use some fiction principles to that? So anyway, I just, I, I love my memoirs. I've done like seven or eight memoirs this year. And um, so yeah, long story short, I do a lot of children's books. I love them. They are always going to be my heart, my bread and butter. Um, I work with adult, uh, adult meaning not erotic necessarily. I do, I have worked on erotica, but that's that's just a funny little phrasing that we use in the children's book world to mean non-children's. So I do have my, my kind of growing uh, number of non-children's clients as well. Although I think every author should write at least uh, one erotic tale. Don't publish it. I've got one. You're never going to see it. It's not, it's not publishable. <laughs> but just to stretch those muscles and to, to try that yeah. out. Well, yeah. I, I saw on your website is you uh, you offer both uh, in-depth uh, edits as well as a quick phone conversation. I think about 30 minutes was the uh, time offered. So yeah. what's the difference that a writer can expect between those uh, two services? Yes. So most of my services are written. I love doing written services. I love um, getting my hands dirty and getting into the sentences, the images on the page. I'm able to give a lot more kind of concrete, in-depth feedback with a written edit. 
But that being said, it's it's a completely different process to do an overview. And I have uh, two overview options that I do on the phone. One is a 30-minute consult. You can send me up to 10 pages of material questions, a query letter, anything that makes up 10 double-spaced pages. And then we just talk about it. You don't get written notes, but we have more of a big-picture conversation. And I offer the same um, in an hour-long format for a novel. I quickly read your novel and then I offer as much feedback as possible. Again, not written. Um, but usually those are the types of projects where the writer is very close to submission or they have a very specific question that we can sort of address in a big picture, bird's eye view type of format. So you're not really getting uh, feedback as much on the page unless something really jumps out to me. But then we can talk about like, huh, is this really paranormal romance or is this maybe more more magical realism. You know, we can kind of get into conversations of how do I pitch this or uh, what category am I in? Is this YA or is this more adult? Can I aim for a crossover novel right off the bat? You know, those kind of questions that that speak more to category and where you fit in. And, uh, and, and, and so I really like having those conversations because I get into more a strategic mindset. And, um, and it's yeah, it's a nice it's a nice way to break up the kind of on the page editing that I that I do most of the day. And then what I tend to attract more with that service are um, people who are just thinking about working on a project and also authors who are kind of mid career. Maybe they're having issues with their literary agent or they have two projects that they're trying to choose between for their next project. And before they dive in, they'd really like some outside feedback. So it's it's really good for that. And then for for just writers who have an idea, who've never maybe written anything, those are my favorite phone calls because they're like, can you take a peek at what I'm doing? Am I doing something? Do I have a thing? <laughs> you know, and what is this thing? And, and so the, the 10 pages or the overview is really helpful there too, because then we can, I can, I can set them more confidently on their path, if that makes sense. Uh, whereas before they just maybe had an idea and didn't know what it was. So the confidence alone is uh, worth the time spent. And I, I wanted to ask you uh, putting on my kind of my cynical writer hat, hmm, cynical. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what is it you can get from 10 pages and just those 10 pages as opposed to the entire novel? Because I always say, well, if I could have told you my story in 10 pages. I wouldn't have written an entire novel. So for the cynical writers, um, how how does an expert like you who's been doing this for so long cut right through the, the crap and get those 10 pages to tell you what you need to know about the book? That is a awesome question. And thank you for asking. So you did send me questions before the interview. And that was the one I was thinking about when I woke up this morning. Um, and I was like, man, I really hope, you know, because you sent so many wonderful questions. I, I really hope that we would have uh, broached that one. So I'm glad. Well, I so never want to share each other. I don't want to waste my time with Mary Cole. I want to make sure we get great content. So go right ahead. Uh, this is this is my moment that I woke up thinking about. So I hope I don't screw it up. Um, so basically, uh, just just to uh, put on my jerk literary agent hat for a second, I will say there is something that comes from evaluating literally tens of thousands of manuscripts, right? You, you start to kind of be able to see common writing issues 
and what they might project to me uh, on the the bigger in the bigger sense of a manuscript. So there is a class of uh, showing. Uh, I'm sorry, telling not showing issues that if I see them in the first ten pages, that kind of tends to again. And I always I always do give the caveat for the cynics out there. I am seeing the manuscript sight unseen for the most part. We're just talking about the first ten pages, so. Um, I kind of always add that grain of salt to to my advice during these uh, overview calls. Um, there is just something about having read tens of thousands of manuscript openings, especially, and then for a lot of them, the manuscripts that follow, that let me kind of put writers in different buckets in my head and kind of speak to issues that they might be having because at their core, the most common writing issues, there really aren't that many of them. Um, for example, the the show don't tell maxim that you hear repeated all the time that tends to indicate some issues with how a writer might handle emotions. Are they going very very in depth about their emotions, or are they just relying on cliches like hammering hearts to convey the emotions of their character? That might be a conversation worth having with a writer who uses a lot of physical cliches on the page in the first couple of pages. You know, so there. I kind of have buckets in my head and I can't really give a more concrete answer than like, well, I've seen a lot. And so I've developed these buckets, you know, cause that's kind of, that's, that's kind of the conversation that, that I have with the writer. But the other answer to this question is that, um, unfortunately, unless you do compel somebody with your query, they won't move on to the sample pages. And unless you compel somebody with your first 10 pages usually, so that number is not chosen by accident, unless you compel somebody with the first 10 pages, a literary agent or publisher isn't going to move on to the partial request or the full request for your manuscript. So there is a lot of pressure put on the first 10 pages. And within those first 10 pages, there is probably two or three hours of discussion that could take place. So I actually have more information and more material and more feedback going into one of these calls than the half an hour time frame will allow. Are you starting in the right place? Are you starting with a big info dump of backstory or are you starting in action? Action, um, since I called the other option a big info dump, if you couldn't tell, action is preferable. Um, you know, so there are all sorts of things, not just that I can infer about a writer from the writing on the first 10 pages, but there are things to talk about in the first 10 pages. And uh, so one of the elements of the service, since it is 10 pages of anything, um, they can send me a synopsis where I can give them feedback on the bigger scope of their novel too. So that's always an option. If someone's like, you know what, I don't want to hear about my writing issues in the first 10 pages. I'd much rather hear about this, this kind of muddy middle that I've been accused of. Can you tell me where the tension might be flagging in my synopsis? So really it is all about how the writer wants to use that time in those pages too. And that flagging middle, that can be identified clearly in just the outline, because if your story structure isn't properly, for, isn't, isn't working, uh, then it doesn't matter how much nice description, how much nice dialogue you have in there, because you're still going to lag. Is, am I hearing that right? 
Yeah, uh, plot, especially in middle grade, especially in young adult, they are competitive marketplaces. So plot is hugely important. We don't tend to favor a lot of novels that do a lot of navel gazing. It's just internal conflict. There has to be an element of external conflict as well. That's why some middle grades get branded quiet because they tend to be more coming of age, set in the school or family um, milieu. And um, without plot, though, coming to sort of um, support and be a scaffold for the character, those those novels just don't tend to... Uh, have the firepower to attract a lot of attention. There are always exceptions. Well, I'm thinking of, I've been talking up uh, Wish Tree by uh, Catherine Applegate recently, because that book blew my mind, because the protagonist is a tree. But oh my gosh, how can you get a more passive character than someone who's literally uh, <laughs> rooted right there, there and has no, no agency? Uh, but <laughs> she finds a way to get it done. It's, it's worth reading as a one-off just masterclass. Um, so while I've got you, let's let's get more free content. What uh, other than those first ten pages and, and, and not opening with action, um, telling instead of showing? What are some other common mistakes that you're seeing uh, writers make? Yeah, um, uh, it, specific to middle grade or all around? Your choice. Um, well, I can go by category. How about that? <laughs> so for my picture book writers, if there are any uh, on your podcast, uh, then I would say a heavy handed message is probably the number one liability in picture book. Because if you think about these kids, they are lectured all day long. They're told what to do. I certainly do that to my son all day, every day. Brush your teeth. I want to hear the cheeky, cheeky, cheeky. Um, Maybe that's just me in my house, but you know, so they're nope, told that happens here too. <laughs> they're told what to do all day long. And uh, I, I think a lot of picture book writers come to their story ideas because they have, they have a burning desire to convey a very strong message to young impressionable readers. And that can be fine as the thing that gets you to the page. But at the same time, a message can't just lie there like a slug at the end of your picture book. And we all learned how to share and that sharing is good. You know, like that, that lands with a thud. It, it takes off like a lead balloon in, a, in the picture book market, which is very much against this kind of like overt moralizing. Um, and so that's a common mistake. And my advice is always give it to the character, give the character the realizations, empower the character, because you have to think toddlers don't feel empowered in their everyday life because they don't get to make any of their own decisions. That's why they tantrum. Um, so give the realization to the character, like show them enjoying sharing and just avoid the temptation to step in there as the author and deliver the message. You know, that's a that's kind of the easy advice that I give to a lot of people where where they just are are really moralizing and really just want to make sure that you get it. Um, those types of picture books don't don't tend to fly. Um, in middle grade, middle grade can be tough, especially uh, in terms of the the different age ranges within middle grade. They're complicated by different um, reading levels. And so um, you have people in middle grade who are still learning how to read independently or gaining their confidence. And then you have like superstar readers in middle grade who are very advanced, scratching at maybe adult fantasy or sci-fi um, and you kind of have to you you have to make some category decisions in middle grade that you wouldn't 
otherwise. And so I see like 5,000 word manuscripts that think they're middle grade and like 90,000 word manuscripts that think they're middle grade. And just uh, the, the biggest consideration there is just really thinking about your target age range, which the sweet spot for middle grade really is nine to 12, but it can kind of go up and down a little bit. Um, not alienating the readers who may be more reluctant by giving them a 130,000 word middle grade manuscript, for example. Um, obviously fantasy and sci-fi and other genres tolerate the longer manuscripts because you have to do a lot of world building. But really um, the, the best way to hone in on what middle grade is and what middle grade voice is and which themes speak to the middle grade reader is to read a lot of middle grade. And there's so much incredible middle grade out there. And middle grade tends to be something where writers just kind of go into it. They don't know what it is. They don't know what the rules are. They break them all because they just don't know any better and they haven't read any middle grade. And so- Not the, not the writers watching or listening to us. These are savvy people. That, no, uh, I know. That, that we're we're talking grade. about the, the other guys. Yeah, um, friends. Yeah, <laughs> right. Everybody that reads Kidlet is a beautiful genius. Everybody on Middle Grade Ninja is a beautiful genius. We know this. It almost goes without saying. But some other people, um, they don't, there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of misconceptions about what middle grade actually is. And I think a trip to the middle grade section of your favorite bookstore, um, you know, the thing, the building with lots of books in it. That doesn't start with A um, <laughs> or the library. Like really this nine to 12 kind of hotbed of life experience people tend to repress it in their own lives. And for some, some aspiring middle grade writers, it's just really hard to connect to that, that kind of nugget of life and what's important to kids that age, how they speak. Um, I read probably more adult voice in middle grade than I do in any other category. I almost feel like it's easier to tap into your young adult self than it is to your middle grade self. And so I just, that's that's where I find myself putting together more comp title lists than in any other category. Cause I'm like, dude, you gotta read. That's how I say it too. You pay me a lot of money and you just get an email back that's like, okay, here's your report. Dude, you gotta read. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, if, you, if that's a lesson you that the person has to learn, that that's worth the money. Uh, it's that drives it's me on nuts. top of like 20 other pages of notes, but that's the note I give to a lot of aspiring middle grader writers. Dude, read. Been uh, teaching these uh, fiction workshops here locally. Uh, if you're curious, Head to head to middlegradeninja.com, sign up. I'd love to see it the next one. Um, but uh, oh, just nonstop, every chance I get. Um, but uh, something that just drives me nuts is that's my first question to people. What are you working on? Okay, what have you read that's like that? And if you're telling me I want to write middle grade and the last book you read was The Witches in, in 1989, or uh, if you're telling me I, one I get all the time is I want to write an adult novel that's a little bit horror related. Okay, what's the last horror novel you read? Interview with a Vampire. And oh my God, <laughs> hands down, Anne Rice wrote a masterpiece, but that came out in 1994. What have yes. you been doing since, man? Yes. So I, uh, you know, I will not tell tales out of school in specific terms about clients, but that is, you know, that is a question. And, and you want to phrase it positively. You don't want to be like, do you even 
didn't read. But you know, you're uh, a question I like to ask is, so what do you do to keep up with the current marketplace? You know, because if I get somebody who's like, you know, um, there are tons of like hundred page picture books out there. And then they tell me a bunch of things that were published, you know, like illustrated storybooks, which is a category that has really dimmed in the publishing marketplace published in the eighties or early nineties. I'm like, I, it pains me to think that the nineties were 20 years ago, but did you know that that's actually a fact now, you know, <laughs> the marketplace has, just, I know, I know. <laughs> The, but the marketplace has just grown by leaps and bounds, not only in terms of the categories be, becoming more defined and really tightening up, but just the artistry, the number of people writing various kinds of children's books, the illustration quality is just mind-blowingly good these days. Like it's just become a commercial juggernaut. And so, you know, there are a lot of things being done now in the field that weren't being done in the 90s. And it just, again, behooves. <laughs> you oh, why the long face? Oh my God, we'll have horse fun. All, we're horsing around, it's good times. <laughs> right, so it's just the, for people who haven't, who give me comp titles, you know, people always love to argue. I had, um, you know, I did have one client who was citing uh, an author on voice uh, and kind of logistical description. Some writers really pour on logistical description, not realizing that it sort of slows down that pacing that we talked about. And I had a client who kind of came back at me um, with with this this writer that was a personal favorite whose publishing history was literally in the 60s. And you know, it's just like, you gotta, yeah, yeah, first of all, somebody who is famous can do whatever they want. Like their editor is probably dead at their desk and not even reviewing the <laughs> manuscript, you know, and they, the manuscript just comes in and gets the green light and the editor just doesn't even look at it anymore. But somebody who well, made their- hooked up with that deal, that sounds pretty sweet. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but somebody who made their bones as a worldwide famous writer in the 60s, you probably aren't going to be held to the same standards trying to enter the game now. And that's just something that a lot of writers don't realize when they do choose comps by famous authors or they do choose comps that are outdated as far as what the marketplace is doing right now. So I just... The, the the one argument that really gets under my skin, um, I'm more than happy to field rebuttals from clients. I love it. If I'm wrong and I learn something, that's a banner day for me because um, then I can go tell my husband that I was wrong about something and like his head will explode. Oh, it's a banner day for him too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but I love to be proven wrong because then I get to learn something. Um but the one argument, the one rebuttal uh, that I sometimes get that really gets under my skin is, oh, I can't read. Um, I don't want to dirty the pool. I don't want to influence <laughs> myself. I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want fresh new ideas to come into my mind, heaven forbid. <laughs> but it's just like, you gotta read. There are masters out there. Like the, the, the tree, see again, I'm horrible with titles. What did we just talk about? Oh, um, uh, the wishing tree. The wishing tree. It's like somebody made a tree into a compelling protagonist. If you have a passive protagonist who's a human child, there's no excuse for you. 
go read this book, see how somebody does, like a true master of the form does it. You know, there are so many of your peers that you want to join writing amazing books to not want to dirty the pool or whatever the, the genesis of the argument is. Logically, I understand, but you are shortchanging yourself. And actually, by not reading and by not exposing yourself to A, the marketplace, and B, fresh ideas, you end up with more cliche writing because you think that the first image that pops into mind is so fresh and wonderful, but it's actually a huge cliche. You just don't know it because you're not reading. Watch <laughs> you uh, dirtying the pool. I mean, unless you're sitting in a dark room someplace, all alone, no internet, no Netflix, nothing. Um, plus, the, we'll stop beating a dead horse uh, here in a moment. Um, but uh, this is something that, that a question I always wanna ask those types of people is if you're not reading, why do you wanna write? Who is it you imagine is going to be interested in reading your books when they could be doing whatever you're doing when you're not reading? See, you're trying to apply logic to an illogical situation. Oh, well, that is my mistake. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, exactly. If you want to participate in the book world, then you have to know the book world. You have to love the book world. You have to develop a fire and a passion for the book world instead of just being like, nope, the only voice this world needs, this guy's. Let me ask you, uh, when, when uh, writers out there looking for a freelance editor, somebody to give them uh, great advice, uh, assuming that for some reason they heard this and they didn't immediately go to, to MaryCole.com and, and, and sign up to work with you, um, how should they, how, how should a writer evaluate an editor they want to work with? Yes. So this is great question because um, unfortunately, Anybody, fortunately for the people who want to be editors, unfortunately for some writers, uh, anybody can hang a shingle out and say, I'm an editor, I have an English degree, here are some credentials, um, and just give me money and I'll, uh, I'll give you an edit. And so there are professional organizations that editors can join, but again, anybody can join them. You know, it's like putting in a query letter that you're a member of the SCBWI. Sure, you've taken a, a legitimizing step. You've taken a professional step. Anybody could join the SCBWI. I could probably send my dog an application into the SCBWI, and as long as she's current <laughs> on her dues. So I'm just saying there are, um, writing is a very emotional uh process. You are very invested in your work. It's a big chunk of you. It takes up a lot of your creativity, your emotions. And so if somebody comes at you with flattery, or I'm not, I'm not saying writers are naive, but it can be very easy to be swayed by somebody who positions themselves the right way. And so there are they a lot are, of- uh, They are dreamers. I always think of writers as yeah. somebody who's got one foot in this reality, one foot in the fantastical. So they're, yeah. they're maybe not seeing everything here because there's much more interesting things going on in their interior landscape. That's right. <laughs> But it's it, it can be easy to be swayed sometimes as a writer. And so I recommend when enthusiasm is high, when um, promises are being made, when there's there are nice things being said about writing, to really pull back and do your due diligence, especially when you're choosing a partner. Like you said, you're hiring people to sort of be on your team. And you really want to find um, somebody that you think is qualified. That's the number one thing. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion and they can give it to you for free or for or for money. And so all editors that you turn to will have an opinion, but how much weight do you give that opinion? 
you have to look at their resume. What kind of experience do they have? Is it experience that's relevant to you? I have made a lot of my bones in children's publishing, but if you're writing erotica, I have done erotica, but maybe finding an erotica editor would be uh, more to your wheelhouse and they have more relevant Unless it's an erotic children's novel and then uh, look no further. <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. Send them to me. Don't send them to me because that's not, that should not be a thing. Well, that should fill up your inbox with some interesting proposals. <laughs> right, come on. Um, so do they specialize and have a relevant experience for what you're writing? Because that's that's really important. Um, I get people uh, who contact me to edit like business white papers and I'm like, dude, I can, but uh, it just wouldn't be who behoove you. <laughs> For the next month, I need to put a moratorium on the word behoove. So if you see it on the blog, just call me out. Um, you know, so what kind of experience? Do they just have an English degree or have they worked at a publisher? Have they read for a literary agency? All of these things are sort of legitimizing points on their resume that a smart editor would gain that experience so they can offer their experience to you. And then they would also... Um, you know, exploit that experience and really sort of put their professional credentials on their website. Uh, does it look like they have clients? Do they have testimonials? Um, try to engage with this person in conversation. I am on email all the time to uh, the chagrin of my family. Um, I'm very responsive. I am just that type of annoying personality. So I really value that in others. And that's how I treat my clients, potentially and existing. I'm very responsive, communicative about deadlines. I have a 13-page agreement, so I come across as um, a very thoughtful legal entity as well. So I'm sort of like, I'm a, I'm a daughter of I's and a crosser of T's, and that's kind of how I conduct my business. And so if you like more of a loosey-goosey approach, just think about like, how is this person like to communicate with? Are they open to answering my questions? Are they willing to do, I do sample edits in certain cases, like for long novels. I wanna make sure that my feedback is gonna align with what you're looking for. I always stand by my feedback, but if you don't like it, then let's not do a big project together because you're not gonna get the value that you're looking for out of it. You know, and so I always try to be very upfront. I try to communicate well. I try to offer uh, samples when when it's relevant. And if a writer asks for a referral uh, to a past client, I am more than happy to connect them with somebody that I've actually worked with. So it's not just, you know, the hypothetical, oh, my clients love me. It's like, here, talk to somebody because I'm proud of the work that I do. So these to me are all the hallmarks of like a legitimate editor who actually does business, who has clients, who has a track record um, that you can check into. And so if somebody doesn't answer emails or is dodgy or doesn't answer questions or won't do uh, a sample edit or can't connect you to past clients, those are kind of all red flags. If they don't have an agreement that protects your scope of work, your rights, their rights, who owns the work, you know, because they're contributing um, stuff on top of your manuscript. Do they claim ownership to that? They shouldn't, for example. You know, it should be considered work for hire. So that sort of thing. Like, like, is this person running a legitimate operation? That's that's what I would want to know if I was approaching a freelance editor, especially because not only are you handing them money, which is a big investment for a lot of people, but you're handing them your creative work and that's inherently tied to your hopes, your dreams, 
<laughs> you know, this is this is a big relationship to get into, and uh, and so yeah, vetting and due diligence, I, I I think is key here. I think you'd put at least as much time, and who's going to be looking at your baby, the manuscript, as you would into looking for a daycare center uh, or a babysitter, anything like that. <laughs> That's right, and I do have people who contract with me. Um, nine months to a year before they expect to finish their manuscript, just like you might for a highly competitive daycare center. <laughs> are you, uh, are you uh, frequently on a wait list? If uh, somebody emails you, how long typically could the, would they expect before you might be able to take on a new claim? Yes. So uh, my wait list is a result of just existing projects that I have in the pipeline. Um, Usually I beat my own deadlines because I like to do that and I hate uh, downtime as a person. Again, I'm a very type A, annoying personality like that. Um, so annoying I, maybe, but effective for the rest of us. I, I like to, I like results. I like to perform. And so uh, I'm usually beating my deadlines, but they're usually run a month uh, to six weeks out for novel projects. I can do picture books pardon me, more quickly. Um, and sometimes if I'm between submissions, I can accommodate the oddball request for like an on the fly edit. Uh, probably not for a 100,000 word manuscript, but picture book, chapter book, short, middle grade, you know, sometimes I'm able to turn those around within two weeks or so. So you can always check in with me. I have a running tally in my head, if you'd believe it. I don't know if I, I don't know if I presented myself clearly. Um, but yeah, I do have a bit of a lead time because I don't like working under the gun. And so I like to build in uh, a buffer for myself as well, just so I can give your project the consideration that it deserves. Makes sense to me. And a couple of points there. Uh, one, my uh, mentor uh, from college, a guy came to my graduation to stand by me and be my official mentor. Uh, I went to him because he's offering the great writer, Will Allison, the author of What You Have Left, one of the most amazing books you'll ever read. Uh, <laughs> and I went to him and I said, Will, please, uh, you're offering editing services. You know I love you. This seems ideal. And for me, it was still a nine-month wait. I don't get any kind of uh, oh, special to the, wow. to the front line treatment. Uh, another thing in there that authors, I think, uh, writers in, in general, uh, can be a little bit hesitant about whether they're considering an editor, a literary agent, or any service, uh, is it is absolutely 100% perfectly within your right to request that uh, a referral be made available to you and somebody you can go and contact and verify. Now, obviously, you've got testimonials from satisfied writers uh, on your website, um, and, and, and people blog about you and talk about you elsewhere, but even if that weren't true, uh, any editor you're talking to, unless it's their first time ever editing, and then I, I hope you're getting a heck of a deal, if that's true, uh, <laughs> should be able to refer you to, to someone. Yeah, I uh, even though I have testimonials, even though I make no secret about my happy clientele, I will furnish you a referral in your category. So I'm not going to send you one of my memoir clients if you're writing picture book. I'm going to do my darndest. If my client is amenable to that, obviously, I, I, I don't want to send a, a flood of people their way, but I always contact the client and say, hey, can you speak to a potential picture book person or whatever it is? I make the connection and then I, I stand back and I know that everybody talks to more than one editor usually. And w the only thing I can do is participate in that, that vetting process as best as I can. And that definitely includes referrals. If somebody's cagey, or throwing up red flags to you on a gut level in, in kind of any interaction, I would listen to that, even if it's me. 
even if I send you a sample edit and you hate it, good. I'm really glad we know that before we got into an agreement together because you're just not going to see the value in my work and I probably am not the right fit for you. So the thing to remember is this business really is subjective. Um, whether a person has all the experience in the world or none, you want to find somebody who you just work well with and whose uh, who's feedback you can trust. Because you can't manufacture that. Isn't that a, a big part of your motivation for doing this? Because there are a lot of ways to make money. Uh, you're doing this to work with authors, and I assume because you want to create a product you believe in and you feel good about having spent your time on this earth, uh, having focused on that, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, my my number one, so through all the work that I've ever done that you can see, I have a strong teaching component to everything from the blog to the book to the editing that I do one-on-one -on -one with clients every day because I love it. I have gone out, I have gotten experience, I have created some ideas about the craft of writing fiction. I love to share those. At the same time, I am not in a vacuum. My ideas are so gratifying because they go to other people and they help other people create things. And that is what I'm really passionate about. Like. I, I'm not a doctor saving lives <laughs> or anything. I don't think of myself in those terms at all, but at the same well, time- Well, you may be creating some things that make life worth living. But yeah, at the same time, I'd like to think, and one of my big passions for what I do is that just these, these things that I can contribute to a writer's life will help them create a more beautiful book or a more meaningful book, which will then get a life of its own and create ideas and beautiful things in the life of a reader. Like, I just like, I, I hope that I'm a small part of that ripple effect of a good book that can actually go out there and change lives. And that's something that I'm like, that, that sounds so Pollyanna almost, but I get to do that every day. And that's like, it, even 10 years in is such a thrill for me. No, I absolutely understand. In fact, uh, some of my favorite credits are not the books with my name on the cover. They're the books where I'm thanked in the back because I know I've made a significant contribution to yeah. something like that. Well, let me, uh, let me pick your brain for some freebies while I've got you, and then we'll start to look at wrapping this thing up. But I do want to ask okay. you um, uh, just some editing questions. Uh, you said that character uh, is the most significant craft element for writing for children. Uh, and you want to avoid cliche characters. So what are some of your tips for creating uh, the best non-cliche character that's going to drive a, a, a good story? Yeah, so I've, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. And this is one of the cornerstones of my teaching philosophy is this concept that I didn't come up with, but that I've kind of been squatting on of interiority. And I use that word and I define it as a character's thoughts, feelings, reactions, and inner struggle. Um, a lot of being you scripts that skim on the surface, a lot of descriptions, pardon me, of character that skim on the surface, they don't really go to one level down on a character. And so for speaking of the phrase and so, that is one of the things that I use in my editing a lot, which is, you know, this, this character goes through this momentous event and it's not really tackled how they're reacting to it. Like maybe their heart starts hammering or whatever, or they feel shocked and devastated. You know, those are just words. How does it land with them in a more specific way? So I always, as an editor, find myself asking, and so, because there are a million different people on this planet, 8 billion actually, <laughs> now that I say that. There, 
so many different personality types. There are so many different um, sensibilities out there. So I want to know, you know, how this character would react to this event, why it's meaningful, some of those specific reasons. Sometimes the most unexpected reactions to events are the ones that are my favorites because they tell me something about character. Like if a character is to win a scholarship and they're pissed, you know, why? Like what kind of things and stakes are tied up in in that reaction? So I always sort of um, try to guide readers to what's underneath uh, a reaction, what's underneath what a character is doing in a scene, what's underneath their behavior, the way that they're um, the way that they're acting, why they want to pursue something, what matters to them, like these kind of deeper questions because, those are the things that we care about in our own lives. And I think kids uh, and young readers more so than anybody else are the ones who are very, very concerned about what matters to them, why it matters, what the stakes of their situation are. They're very good at like having high stakes for kind of pedestrian situations. <laughs> and so they care so deeply about their lives, their friends, what's going on with them. And if they know those things about a character, and not just like, like in picture book, it's whenever I see a picture book that's like, this is Jenny, Jenny's favorite ice cream flavor is peanut butter. You know, that doesn't tell me anything about Jenny. So I'm always writing people with and so type questions just to get a little bit more definition, a little bit more specificity to characters because this, those specific things and those may be surprising and unexpected things like that unexpected reaction to, to the win of the scholarship, those are really what is gonna get a reader invested. And readers desperately wanna be invested. Like even, even diehard action fans, they don't wanna see a crash test dummy go through the plot of the story. They want to care about a character that needs to change, but hasn't figured out how. A character who struggles with something that seems like an immovable obstacle. You know, these kind of things um, are, are what's ultimately relatable. They're the universal truths of life. And that's what we see when we see another character who, that's why I always say in a query letter, um, focus on what your character wants above all, because that's instantly, relatable. We all know what it's like to desperately want something. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I strongly believe that character and kind of character nuance, not just character, not just who they are, not just what they wear, not just what kind of music they listen to, character nuance, like the deep, dark, underbelly, vulnerable stuff that they may not even necessarily share with you um, right off the bat. That's what's going to bond character and, uh, and reader. Well, that sounds like it might lead to a moment where the author you're talking to says, well, I don't know why my character wants this so much, because I want it. And then they the, just start to weep. <laughs> and if they want it, it's probably true that there are readers out there who want the same thing. And then you guys have have a love connection. And so if you're looking to make a character stand out, it's, it's show, don't tell. And the instance you use, if somebody likes peanut butter flavored ice cream, that fact isn't interesting. But if that person is able to shove 10 people out of the way in line to get the last uh, peanut butter ice cream cone, that tells us something about that character. So am I hearing that right, that we want specific examples that show us who that character is because we can't believe them if they just tell us who they are? 
Yeah, and that that ice cream happens to be peanut butter flavored. That is a secondary piece of information. If they throw elbows at a school bake sale, I learn so much more about that character than just, oh, they like peanut butter. No, I learned that they're maybe a little rude, tenacious, you know, both good and bad things about them. And that helps me put together, because readers like to be detectives. They like to put together their own impressions of character. And so if, you, um, if you're shown something like that, and that was a great example, actually. If you're shown something like that, I get to participate in the story more and be like, oh, I get who this person is. I'm forming my own impression. Whereas if the writer was just like, she was tenacious and it sometimes got her in trouble. You know, that just kind of lies flat on the page. I'd much rather see it in action and be able to come to that conclusion myself because then I become more invested in the story because I'm sort of like digging it, digging into it along with with the the reader and the writer. I just kind of think of it as uh, you're meeting a character for the first time. If I, if I sat down in a coffee shop and somebody came up to introduce themselves to me, and the first thing they say is, I'm a very trustworthy person. I'm thinking, this is not a person I can trust. Right. Nobody who's trustworthy starts there. Show exactly. me you're trustworthy, and then, then we'll see. Well, I want to I want to move us along, because I know we're, we're running close to our deadline here, but I want to pick your brain as much as I can. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, pacing. Um, where what are good tips that authors can employ to whether pacing is lacking or whether maybe going too fast? How can you tell and how can you fix it? Okay, so pacing too fast is almost never an issue, <laughs> but some writers who like a lot of action and maybe less attachment to character, that tends to be the kind of bucket that they fall into. Um, there, I would say if you're putting something on the page, there has to be a reason for it. If you're putting this chase sequence on a page, if you're putting this fight on a page, um, usually it does tend to, quick pacing tends to affect, you know, action and adventure type stories more often, thrillers, that sort of thing. Slow down every once in a while and uh, really ground it in why this matters to the character. Like they just got done kicking somebody's butt, they feel really good about it. Before you move them on into the next action sequence, give them a beat on the page of like, man, you know, I never thought I could beat that guy. And he's been after me for, you know, so just do a little bit more reflection there to really anchor the moment, kind of have this like post-mortem unpacking sort of thing with it where that, that huge action sequence that you just gave us, it resonates with the character. That's a way to kind of slow yourself down while providing character dimension uh, to your story. So that's kind of best of both worlds scenario. The, the more my chapter from this morning. Oh, <laughs> there we go. That'll be two thousand dollars. No, I'm kidding. Um, Fair enough. So, uh, well spent. so then for the slow pacing, which does tend to be a much bigger issue for a lot of writers, um, my biggest if you're worried that it's infecting every aspect of your novel, my biggest advice would be to print the thing out and sit down with a pen. And the only thing you're ever allowed to write with the pen is like a little hash mark in the margin. Start reading your writing. And then every time your attention drifts, just make a little hash mark. Don't try to fix it. Don't think about anything else. Just, just read and see where you start to maybe lose focus. Start thinking about your, your errands for the afternoon, whatever. And just make a little hash mark. Those tend to be um, where you even lose attention on it 
even though it's your own work and you should be the most invested, where your attention starts to wander, those tend to be problem areas. And usually the enemies of quick pacing, pacing, by the way, is the perceived experience of reading something, how quickly something seems to go from a reader's, uh, from a reader's viewpoint. So the pacing issues that I see most often are over description. If you're doing too much minute kind of logistical description, you could probably zoom out a little bit so that things move quickly. And you also have to ask yourself for every every kind of more boring scene is, is all of this absolutely necessary? Is any of it redundant? Do you have two action sequences back to back, even though there's action, is it the same kind of action? So maybe you could only make do with one. Or am I describing way too much here? Um, I had a client who, uh, let's say candle making, because I don't want to uh, expose anybody's privacy. Um, I had a client the other day who had something really, really exciting that happened in about two paragraphs. And then there was like a five page description of candle making the whole process. Um, you know, maybe are there exciting things that could get more focus in your project and less exciting things? Because at the end of the day, unless your book is a candle making saga um, and not a lot of books are, uh, do we need this five page section on candle making? Just because you did your research, you learned about candle making, you think it's fascinating. Do we really need the play by play for the candle making for five pages? So you just have to really, um, I think if you do have some slower sections in your manuscript, decide is all of this necessary? And secret second question, is all of this necessary right here? Is there a way to maybe distribute some of this information elsewhere or cut it? Usually those are kind of big um, one size fits all pieces of advice for, for slow pacing. So piggybacking off of that, is there, and we'll talk specifically about middle grade, because um, that's what I'm writing and that's what I'm curious about. Um, is there a, a, good, a good rule of thumb ratio for how much description you need for dialogue? You don't want to have just dialogue for five pages like a Hemingway story, and it's just two talking heads against a green screen. Um, but you don't over-describe either. Is there a good ratio or is it just kind of depend on a case-by-case -case circumstance? It does depend on case-by-case. -case. It depends on your genre. It depends on what else is going on in the scene. Sometimes scenes can be slower and more contemplative with a lot of sort of interiority from the character between instances of dialogue. If there's a lot of conflict in the dialogue for them to react to, for example. I do prefer less uh, description chopping up dialogue. For example, um, you don't really get into a flow if you're using a lot of dialogue tags to always just say, oh, he said as he uh, put put the stop hand up. You know, um, I don't necessarily think that um, dialogue needs a lot of scaffolding around so it. So in an instance like that, would it just be better to say he put the, the stop hand up without the, the he said or just eliminate the description altogether? Yeah, or I. there are a lot of writers who kind of pair every line of dialogue with a gesture. You don't need it. For me, the star of scene really is dialogue. Um, but I would say if you have a page where it's entirely dialogue, that's going to really catch your attention just visually when you're looking at your manuscript. You may want to think about giving one of the characters some reactions or uh, adding some narrative or introducing an action that sort of happens to drift in in the middle of that dialogue because I think the back and forth, it really can, um, 
it's it sort of it's hard to focus on that if there's too much of it. Makes sense to me. Let's uh, talk a little bit about book marketing because uh, I'm always looking for new tips on book marketing. Uh, how I think better marketing. You've got it down. <laughs> I could always be doing better. Susan K. Quinn's going to come on here next month and she's going to tell me all the things I'm doing wrong and she'll be doing better. That's why I love Susan. Uh, she's invaluable to me. Um, so what uh, what are things that you've seen authors doing that you wish you saw more authors doing to market their books? Yeah. Um I think that um, there's always, so when you when you think about online marketing of any kind, there's always this idea of value. Um, my mother does not understand why I haven't monetized my blog. You know, I, I do sell webinars. I do sort of uh, like the writing blueprints class I'm gonna advertise on the blog, but I've never like made people pay for content on the blog. Why? Because I give away valuable content and people enjoy that. Like they don't wanna be forced behind a paywall to get advice. And um, so I think that there's a lot of value in giving away good stuff. That's um, that's blogging 101. You don't just wanna blog about yourself, you wanna blog about um, you know things that may have value to your readers. Like if you're, uh, novel is about butterflies and you find some really cool articles or you have some really cool ideas about butterflies, just give it away. And that'll attract readers. That'll make you valuable to readers. That's kind of always been my approach. And so a lot of writers, what I wish um, they would do is give more kind of value heavy content away. Um, don't make people kind of uh, have to go over a hurdle to participate. You're doing marketing for yourself, you know, like you're benefiting yourself with marketing. You don't want to make people pay for those efforts. Um, so, for example, I, uh, I have been giving away free uh, visits via Skype or whatever tech to writers groups. You know, sure, it takes up my time. It takes time that I charge for it with editorial work or those phone calls that we were, were talking about. I could assess an hourly rate, but it's so much fun for me to beam into a writer's meeting or uh, uh, even a critique group. I've, I've spoken to a couple of critique groups. I just give it away. And sometimes those people become clients, sure, but I enjoy it. I genuinely enjoy being of value to other people. And I think that that is so much better than the more mercenary approach to marketing where it's like, well, I'm going to charge, you know. And so I wish more writers would say, hey, let me beam into your story time. Let me beam into your school group. Let me beam in because, you know, schools especially have a lot of great AB capabilities for school visits. It's like, you know what, don't make it a big production every time you have to do something like that. Enjoy doing it. Learn how to enjoy doing it. Make yourself available. You never know when you're going to connect with a lifelong reader or, you know, a teacher or a librarian who's going to be your biggest champion. Like, and I don't mean to give this advice flippantly because I realize not everybody appears to be an extrovert. I'm actually an introvert. I need, like, like I told you at the, uh, when we were talking before this interview, I'm going to just sit there and not say anything for the rest of the day after this, because this is a lot of talking for me. But if you can at all participate with your readers and make yourself available and public speaking doesn't terrify you 100%, it can terrify you 99%. <laughs> but if these things are even at all available to you, then 
be there, be out there, put yourself out there and don't charge for it, give it away. And that is the biggest sort of um, thing that I think a lot of people, they're like, well, if I, if I put my stamp on anything, if I do anything, I want to be compensated for it. And you know what, honestly, I've gotten so much business, like paid business from just giving stuff away that for me, I think it, it really makes a huge difference. Get out there, give as much away as you can, advertise the, the kind of good stuff that you've got available. Um, Mary, you've got an MFA in creative writing. I'm gonna make this just about my last question for you because okay. I, I wanna give you time to, to have your silent introvert time and, and restore <laughs> balance. Um, but uh, you've got an MFA in creative writing. Is it still possible that we may see a middle grade novel picture book from Mary Cole or have you found a greater satisfaction in helping other authors? You know, to be honest with you, I think most people who work in publishing, they have their own little creative stuff uh, that they're working on. And uh, I've only met like one or two editors who like swear up and down that they aren't interested in their own writing. Um, and I almost don't believe them, but again, <laughs> Can you name names? <laughs> that's a different issue. Um, so yeah, I love to write. What brought me to uh, the publishing industry in the first place was a love of writing. But I also think that people should be strategic and play to their strengths. And to be perfectly honest with you, one of the struggles that I face with my own writing is that I'm very, very critical of my own work in a way that maybe nips stuff in the bud a little bit, you know? Uh, I almost know too much where if I, like I'm, I'm heavily, heavily critical of myself. And that's something that I need to work on in my own life because who needs that? Who needs to be that mean to themselves? But if I come up with an idea, I then come up with about 20 reasons why it's a bad idea. And if I start doing fiction writing, because I'm so used to being on the other side of things and critiquing fiction writing, I can come up with about 20 reasons why it's bad writing. And so I actually end up um, you know, starting a lot of things and then getting discouraged because I am my own worst critic, literally. And um, I, I don't edit other people like this. Like to, <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> just for uh, I'm, I'm an author of one. Just Miracle gets this treatment. I'm a jerk to this one, not a y'all. Um, but it's it's actually been a big struggle for me to be like, man, I used to really enjoy writing until I got into the industry and got to know so much writing and read so much writing that I perceived to be better than my own. And it really kind of took the wind out of my sails. So I have uh, drawer manuscripts that'll probably never see the light of day. I, uh, I, I don't rule out especially another nonfiction book because like I said, I really loved the process of uh, writing that one. Um, who knows, you know, I'd love, I would love to be published in fiction. Um, we'll see. Uh, the other issue is time. I have a young family and I work with over 500 clients a year, which is not like, it's insane to me that I would ever be so busy and so fulfilled uh, doing something. Not a stretch and my stomach is tightening just hearing that. Oh, <laughs> right? I just, but not all of them are novels, right? So, you know, there are picture books I can, I can, it, it doesn't take me a whole day to do a picture book, let's just say. So, I'm just so phenomenally busy, but I would, yeah, it's, it's a heart dream of mine. And, uh, 
and hopefully, hopefully I get a chance to make it come true for myself one day, not just my clients. Well, as soon as you do come back here, I will review it on the uh, blog. I'll be happy to have you back. We'll talk about it. Be nicer um, to me than I am to me. That's all I ask. And it would that be sounds like, uh, like an easy enough thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I will uh, get you some peanut butter ice cream. We'll have a good time. <laughs> Maria, what uh, what is next for Maricole? What uh, exciting projects can we be looking for down the road here? Well, to to kind of piggyback on what I said, um, I have been thinking about putting together another nonfiction book because you know it's it's time. It's five years since writing Irresistible Kid Lit came out, so I'm kicking that around. Uh, like I said, I am debuting this submission blueprint where I use my literary agent experience to talk about the submission process kind of from an insider perspective. Uh, that's gonna be coming to writing blueprints in January, late January. So I'm gonna be doing a lot of marketing uh, and, and, and stuff for that one. And I have uh, learned a few things from you, good sir. Oh. Um, <laughs> and then um, I'm thinking, I have a few other irons in the fire. I think the webinars have really been a big, uh, a big kind of fun new thing for me. I may, I don't know, I may resurrect my YouTube channel just because I know people love watching videos. I really enjoyed this, uh, this format. Do it, I'll come on and I'll, I know I have friends. I'll get them to come on too, I'll come on. <laughs> I have friends, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like, yeah, so I'm just thinking of uh, doing, reaching people in more places and more ways because because you get bored when you've been blogging for 10 years. You know, you I, I've said a lot. Uh, there's definitely more to say, but now I, I, now I think my, my next expansion phase is just uh, reach, reaching more people in different ways, I think, and learning how to do that. I love learning. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep trying to put this mug in front of y'all, <laughs> whether you like it or not. <laughs> you can put it back here anytime. This has been one of the uh, most fun conversations I've had oh, about writing. Pish Thank you so much for coming by. <laughs> it's uh, been a wonderful time. Everybody should uh, check you out again at kidlit, K-I-D-L-I-T dot com and maricole.com. Can they follow yep. you on Twitter as well? Yep, uh, my Twitter handle unfortunately has an underscore in it, but it's kid underscore lit. I couldn't get the, the OG. Uh, and I also have a business page for my editorial on uh, Facebook. It's Facebook slash uh, Mary Cole editorial. I was once the proud owner of robertkent.net. Uh -huh, sometimes that's just the breaks. <laughs> um, as always, uh, come back for uh, additional episodes in the future. Make sure you visit middlegradeninja.com where this will be posted in its entirety, as well as Mary Cole's original uh, interview and links to all of the things Mary's working on. Don't forget to download your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees for free. Uh, esteemed audience, thank you so much for tuning in again. We will see you next time. Thanks thank again, you Mary. Thank so you for having me. It was